0: Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the ACTUS podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The ACTUS broadcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and ACTUS. Today is Thursday, January 2nd, and marks our 140th program, as well as our first 2020. And I want to welcome all of our listeners um, and wish them a happy new year. I hope it's off to a great start. Thanks for joining and taking part of your year to join us here on the ACTIS podcast. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of ACTIS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists. And I'm your host for today's program, The Clinical Truth. I'm joined today by my co-host at left, Sharm Brody. Sharm is a full-time instructor for us here at Actus with our CDI Boot Camps. By way of background, she has more than 35 years in the healthcare industry, including multiple areas of nursing and a variety of roles. Prior to joining us here at Actus, Sharm worked as a consultant providing program audits, implementation, continuing education for CDI departments. She's implemented and overseen CDI departments in large academic and small community hospitals. And I'm glad to have her back as our familiar co-host on the first show of 2020. Welcome to the program, Charm.
1: Thank you, Brian, and happy new year to everyone and
0: yourself. All right. And next, I'd like to introduce today's special guest. He's been with us uh, on the program before, but I'm very pleased to have him back. We have with, our, with us Cesar Limhoco. Uh, Dr. Limhoco is the chief medical officer of Team Medicus. For more than 25 years, Dr. Limhoko has focused on assisting hospitals in establishing clinical documentation integrity and delivered CDI services to critical access hospitals, community hospitals, regional referral centers, large academic medical centers, and multi-facility health systems throughout the United States. We're going to get into this today, but Dr. Limhoko's philosophy is to provide the most accurate documentation of the patient encounter. He accomplishes this through peer-to-peer physician education with the principal focus on the underlying clinical truth, all caps. (laughs) So Dr. Limhoko is a prolific author on clinical documentation coding. You probably have seen him speaking at our past ACTUS conferences, the AHIMA conferences, local and regional HFMA and HCCA conferences. He also serves on our ACTUS regulatory committee, and I want to welcome him to our first show of 2020. Welcome, Dr. Limhoko.
1: Thank you very much, Brian, and hello, Sharmi, and Happy New Year to everyone. It's, it's an honor for me to be uh, on your first uh, panel for 2020. Outstanding.
0: All right. Well, as we always do, we're going to kick off our first show um, with our, a poll question related to today's topic. So today we're asking our listeners, which of the following diagnoses are the most ambiguous or hard to clarify during your chart reviews? Uh, There could be many, but we're hitting some of the top ones and also we're asking you to leave a comment if there's something not on the screen. But your options are sepsis, encephalopathy, acute respiratory failure, acute blood loss anemia, or other. And if you do have another, uh, please leave that in the comment box and I'll see if I can get to a few of those when we come back to the poll later in the show. So again, which of the following diagnoses are the most ambiguous or hard to clarify during your chart reviews? And again, we're, the options we're able to provide are sepsis, encephalopathy, acute respiratory failure, acute blood loss, anemia, or other. All right. I'm going to give that just one more minute here. I'm showing about, about 75% of our audience has voted on this uh, poll question, and we're going to go ahead and close this out and come back to the results in just a few minutes. All right. Great. So as I mentioned, our guest today is uh, Cesar Limhoco. Dr. Limhoco, please, uh, thank, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, thanks for being a part of Actus podcast. Um, you know, I guess I'll start with just, we were chatting before the show started, just about your, your work on social media. You're out there quite a bit on LinkedIn and Twitter and various other platforms, uh, but what I guess is what I see most out of you and what's most common across these various platforms is you're a big proponent of uh, the clinical truth so I thought um, you know and again I've seen you refer to it quite often in social media presentations that you've done for us maybe you could start by describing to our audience sort of what is the clinical truth um, what do you mean by that when you say that why is that so important for CDI professionals to arrive at as the standard in their chart reviews and frankly Why is that so important to you in your day-to-day work? In short, Brian,
1: the clinical truth is really the foundation of clinical documentation improvement or integrity and coding in everything that we do. And if it's not, that's when people get in trouble. I started in the industry way before CDI was actually even an uh, an idea. Um, And I've seen issues with documentation and coding. There's been this large chasm between what is actually going on in the patient encounter and what is being documented in the chart and what is being coded in data. So it has been my mission from the very beginning to level the playing field, so that the clinical truth, which is actually what the patient has, or what is happening to the patient, is accurately captured in documentation and further translated into data. Because that's what really this is all about. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of the industry, it was very hard. It was it was like going up a mountain, uh, the proverbial proverbial rolling up this huge stone up a mountain. Sisyphus, uh, if you remember that in mythology, um, trying to get everybody on board in capturing accurate documentation on the chart. People were just like, I don't care, you know, and. The, the ones who are actually documenting, the physicians, it, were very much not into it. Oh, you know, what's in it for me, um, pretty much what, what, what the bottom line is. And I remember myself, you know, going through uh, training, I always thought that documenting was something as an afterthought, was a, an irritant, was really a pain in my, you know, work. And I hated, um, usually at the end of the month, when I would get a call or an email or something saying that I have so much, so much records, like number of records that are outstanding and um, due for suspension or whatever. And, and I, I hated that. And I'm thinking, here I am doing all of I can to help patients be better. And those people down in medical records just want to suspend me, just want to penalize me, and this is what I'm getting. And pretty much this is what the this um, relationship between physicians and documenting the medical record has been uh, for the majority of physicians out there. And it also contributes to the burnout that we're seeing more and more these days, okay. and it's only it's, it's only when i started to realize when i started to go on the other side and become a liaison between the medical staff and and the folks down medical records that i started to realize that it, it is really important the things that may have been kind of like an afterthought that is important for risk management for you know, and all of that stuff for reimbursement it started coming into play. But then when I started to become the, the advocate for accurate documentation, I had to, I had to learn to teach my colleagues the importance of what, what we're doing, of why we're doing this. And as I said, you know, it was a Sisyphus rock from the beginning. It was very hard. Um, not just for the medical staff, but for the uh, for the administration for hospital administration, for coders, for for everyone, even care managers and what have you to understand what you know what we're trying to do here. And one of the things that we actually started doing is, hey, you know it's impacting on reimbursement and so the hospital administration would would get into it. Because of course it affects the bottom bottom line. The they said, "Well, what's in it for me? I'm not getting paid less or more by doing this. What's in it for me?" So the industry started to evolve, and we started to say, "Okay, well, you know what? It will affect um, the data in such a way that your uh, the way you look lo- look like your um, your uh, how would you say that Broke your or uh, – your profile, yes. Your profiles are are going to be affected, and, soon, and soon, soon enough, the hospital administration will go. Well, if the profile is going to be going to be affected, then it may affect the way you're being, you know, remunerated, you know, what what have you, and your credibility and what have. You. So they started saying, Hmm. Now I get it. I just have to put in how severe the patient is right but soon enough some folks started to 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 overdo it because you know what if if i some some folks would say some if i would just say that everybody's very sick i would look like i would really look good on data so now i've seen the the arc of the documentations come from they're very poor and and getting better And some folks started overdoing it and for what because it's affecting their data they they look good you know it does affect their remuneration and and their profiles their credibility and and so now everybody's sick everybody with infection has sepsis and so you know we try to restrain it and say wait hold on hold on get with it get with the clinical truth I remember when that actually started to become, to actually click. Um, and I don't know if I um, shared this with you before, um, Brian. I was in a meeting, an executive um, committee, med exec committee meeting at a medium sized hospital. Uh, and I presented all of this to the med exec committee. Afterwards, the people left. Uh, but the CEO and the CMO uh, stayed. I wanted to ask more questions of myself, and the CMO started to dig deeper. Said, "I I, I want to dig deeper. You, I understand this is, you know, it affects reimbursement, it affects quality measures, and all of that, and all of that. But who is to say that when I say the patient has sepsis, for example, he says, let me just let me be the devil's advocate.'" Who's going to say that that's correct? Hmm. And I said, well, is, is it really, is it based on the clinical truth? It just came out of my mouth. Is it based on the clinical truth? I said, aha. He said, that's it. I said, wait a minute. What did I say? He said it's based on the clinical truth. And that made sense to him. So from then on, I would say in every presentation or every chance I get to medical staff and to everyone else that you know that that's involved is that it has to be based on the clinical truth. Gotcha. It, we're not going to overdo this. And and you have to learn. And I I've, I've been in meetings before, were in um, the Chief Financial Officer says, you know what, hey, we know we're doing great documentation here but we're still getting a lot of denials and saying, wait a minute, uh, where are you getting your denials? You have to look at the big picture. And then when they come back to me and say, well, we're getting denials because we have a lot of medical necessity uh, uh, denials for our admission, I said, what? And, and it comes, and, and what's happening is um, some folks may inadvertently be calling a patient very sick when they're not. Right. And because of that, unnecessary admissions have bumped up, and they're getting all of these denials. And it's not just, you know, medical necessity, but also, you know, uh, big severity of illness issues like sepsis. Like, as you said, uh, like encephalopathy, like acute respiratory failure, even in small comorbid conditions like acute blood loss anemia. So, in a nutshell, that's what brings me to this clinical truth. That's a long winded uh, yeah. <laughs> answer to your question.
0: <laughs> well, we appreciate Well,
1: you just led right into, yeah, a great answer, but you led right into my question. Sorry, Ryan. Um, what is the gold standard for reporting a condition? Uh, You talk about screening criteria, um, the workup that's done, any interventions. Uh, You also stress that documentation should clarify and distinguish between what may be, what is impending, and what is confirmed after study. Um, What is the thought process a CDI specialist should follow? Okay, that's a very good question. And it really is about looking at the big picture. And it doesn't stop at a certain point. You have to look at the whole arc of the narrative it starts from the impression initial impression which then it's either confirmed or ruled out and then you look at the progress of the patient's condition and resolution of the condition and confirmation of the diagnosis as a final diagnosis so it doesn't stop and and you know um, a lot of folks I've seen, especially in the beginning, they say, well, I don't know, you know, the patient looks septic right now, this is, day, you know, on admission, may uh, look septic, but it may be due to other things. So I have to make a decision as to say the patient is, sepsis, is septic and put on the protocol or else I may lose that patient. My point to folks is it's not a it's not a limited view. You have to look at the full continuum of the story. It doesn't stop at the beginning. Yes, the patient may be septic at the outset. Maybe the patient looks like the patient has encephalopathy, or maybe the patient looks like the patient has, uh, maybe going to shock, maybe hypotensive. But you have to look at how the patient's circumstances evolve. And then make a determination as to is this really due to this condition or can it be explained by something else that's happening with the patient? And there are a lot of factors that come into play patient age, patient population. There are a lot of things that a well skilled physician has to keep in mind to come to a conclusion as to whether the patient has this condition or not Hmm. so it takes into consideration not just the screening criteria not just the abnormal you know laboratory values but also how the patient reacts how the patient's course progresses and evolves
0: all of that has come into play right so it's really keeping a close eye on this on the stay and and you know the progress notes and how the Stays evolving and right, yeah, and, and it provides an issue because a lot of it. I
1: mean, because decision documentation and, and uh, thought processes is, is a little bit um, how would you say that um, uh, like nips and pieces in you know, snips or or snap views because snippets, yeah. when they build, they build on what's happening right now. On on my my ENM you know my evaluate my my ENM uh, level, it depends on what I'm seeing right now. So if I'm seeing the patient look septic right now, and I'm going to do all of those things to this patient, you know I'm I'm saying this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm seeing and these are the resources I'm putting into this patient. So that's what they're billing for, not for the full arc of the patient and you know the patient's stay right it, it's it's very uh how would you say that compartmentalized mm-hmm. so so in a way when they 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 feel sometimes they feel that okay the patient may look septic right now when when they kind of overturn it the next day and say oh it's not really a sepsis but something else or whatever they feel like did I make a mistake? Or some people might think that I made a mistake. So I, I, I try to make them understand that you only put down in your documentation what you know of what's going on with this patient at that point of time. It's not, it's not sealed. Things evolve. New information. May make you better understand what the patient has and give you and may change the diagnosis that doesn't mean that you were wrong in the beginning. It just means that you have better information the next day
0: yeah, just uh, we're getting close to the end of our interview part of the show here, Dr. Lemhoko, but maybe just to wrap up you know um, the sepsis issue we 're going to get to their poll results in just a minute here. I know that this has been one you've frequently talked about on, you know, social media. I've seen you quote some statistics about the huge rise in, in sepsis, and it it has been an initiative for hospitals nationwide to get this early early detection. It, it saves lives to do that. But I know you, you have been concerned, though, about, you know, some false positives being reported from things like, you know, transit bacteremia, uh, expected occurrences that in certain infections, you know, patient will have high white blood cell count, etc., but it's not actually sepsis. So, is there anything just from this as a take-home point for our listeners on kind of finding the clinical truth uh, of, of what is a very complicated diagnosis? From from
1: a CBI perspective, I think just being aware that the actual diagnosis is not sealed at the outset, opens up your mind to the possibility that the patient may have something else going on. With that approach, the CDI specialist now turns to the physician and asks a query, whether it's verbal or written, in such a manner that it's open, which is actually what a, a, a query is supposed to be. It's open-ended. If you're leaving it open for possibilities, then it actually makes the provider think that okay, he/she is not, or he is not asking me whether this really is substance or, or if this is really accepts based on the screening criteria. What, but she's asking me what other things may be happening on the station. So. That open ended approach is something that is, I'm going to highly emphasize because it really opens it up. Gotcha. And with good education of the medical staff and everyone else involved, it really becomes an open ended approach to, to the whole, to the full patient encounter.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Lomhoko. Some great thoughts there for our audience. I'm going to go ahead and share our poll results. Um, so, again, we asked folks which of the following diagnoses are the most ambiguous or hard to clarify during your chart reviews. Uh, sepsis came in second, but close at 33%. Uh, encephalopathy was the narrow winner at 35%. Uh, 24% said acute respiratory failure. Um, Three percent said acute blood loss anemia, and four percent said other. I'm going to go ahead and and uh, pull up some of those other responses here in just a moment. But any any early thoughts on this, uh, Dr. Limhoko, on the on the poll results?
1: Yeah, um, about the encephalopathy being that's that's really hard, and I've I've written about encephalopathy before, and you know I and I've mentioned that. Um, changes in mental status um, are is the hallmark for encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. But not all change in mental status is encephalopathy. Very much so, like um, acute blood loss anemia is going to be represented as a drop in hemoglobin hematocrit, but not all drops in hemoglobin hematocrit is anemia. Gotcha. So that, I hope that makes sense. everybody out there
0: so here are some of the other comments we received gi bleed wounds shock is difficult Uh, encephalopathy is the most ambiguous because of the need to return to baseline for the acute encephalopathies and the often coexisting delirium or dementia that's where the denials lie all the above uh, post-op respiratory failure i know that's a big one Severe sepsis, myocardial infarction versus injury, demand ischemia due to associated etiology, um, renal insufficiency—excuse insufficiency, me—versus renal failure is a very ch- challenging diagnosis to clarify. Both of these diagnoses are used throughout the record, causing frequent queries for clarification. So, a lot of struggles, uh, obviously, but. Um, Encephalopathy seems to be the 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 big the big one right now, followed by sepsis, and um, it's a challenging job. No one ever said it wasn't, right? <laughs> That's true. It's true. All right. <laughs> well, I'm going to go ahead and close the poll out, um, and navigate over briefly here in the last few minutes to our in the news segment of the show. I'm going to go ahead and pull this up. All right. So in the news is a regular segment featuring the the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Um, Today I want to discuss a couple of news items related to uh, risk adjustment. So what you're seeing here on my screen at the moment is a newly released risk adjustment data validation or HHS-RADVI white paper. Uh, That is available for free on the CMS website. Um, It's a lengthy paper. I can't even begin to get into it all today. It's 120 pages. Um, I thought it was interesting because it explains what the Radv program is. This, again, is risk adjustment data validation, including its purpose, objectives, and methodology. Um, there is some helpful overview if you're interested in learning more about Radv. And to sort of give away the, the punchline here, uh, CMS is looking for comment on this uh, white paper. Um, you have just a few days to do it until Monday, January 6th, and, they, and there's actually an email address right here on how to submit comments, um, because they're they're essentially looking for potential modifications to four specific aspects of the RADV program on enrollee, enrollee sampling, outlier detection, error rate calculation, and the application of the RADV results as they define in the paper. So it's a it's a lengthy paper and I really mention this um just to kind of give a little bit of context for what we're anticipating in twenty twenty. Um it's pretty obvious based on this as well as another article I want to share here from the um, the OIG that Radby audits are going to be a much greater focus this year and in the coming years. So this article actually is linked from um, an article on the Actus website here. Radvi audits to intensify in 2020. OIG says this is a report, uh, uh, as sort of a summary of this OIG report here. So, as I always do, I um, will share these links with our listeners after the show on the Actus website. Um, but essentially. CMS uh, reported that it plans to begin audits that would include chart reviews for validity of diagnosis in 2020. After a recent study by the OIG, uh, this study found potential issues with the extent um, to which chart reviews are leveraged by Medicare Advantage organizations, which they call MAOs, and overseen by CMS. The OIG conducted the study due to concerns that Medicare Advantage organizations were using chart reviews to increase risk-adjustment payments inappropriately, according to a statement by the OIG, which said that unsupported risk-adjusted payments are a major driver of improper payments in the Medicare Advantage program. Um, The Medicare Advantage program provided coverage to 20 million beneficiaries in 2018 at a cost of $210 billion. That's with a B. Um, so, and we know Medicare Advantage is growing year over year. It's getting larger, uh, more and more enrollees covered under that under that system, and the risk of inappropriate payments, again, according to the OIG, is going up. So, some really uh, interesting stories here to kick off two thousand and twenty on the RadV program. This new white paper of which CMS is uh, hoping for commentary. Uh, a story here from Actus as well as the original from. The OIG, I thought worth sharing here. And, and Dr. Lemhoko, this this sort of does dovetail with our topic today on the clinical truth, um, you know, because what what they're looking for is not just whether these diagnoses are reported, but whether they're whether they're supported. You know, they require a face-to-face encounter, um, and obviously at an area of considerable risk for hospitals. Just curious, what your thoughts are on these articles and where you see. CDI specialists again fitting in here
1: definitely it's a big uh, it's, a, it's a big challenge um, you know CDI has, has been in the inpatient arena for about 20 years by now but it's just starting on the outpatient side and we need to make sure that providers on the outpatient side um, are aware that whatever that they document should really be based on the clinical truth Mm -hmm. and um, with that in mind and foremost in their mind i think it will be less the risk will be less that uh you know um over documenting and abuse of of severity of illness um can happen i'd like to Say something. I'd like to point out uh, something that I read on LinkedIn um, just a few days ago. Sure. It's from Dr. Sachin Jain, MD, he's uh, president and CEO at Care More and Aspire Health. And he writes Ethical erosion is defined by people and organizations trying to get away with as much as they can rather than doing what they know to be right. The job of leadership is to vigilantly defend against ethical erosion in all its nefarious forms. And thus, the clinical tooth should be first and foremost, should be the North Star in the industry, not just on the inpatient side, but also on the outpatient side.
0: Hmm. Well, I think that's… Some really wise words. Dr. Lamahoko, in a great spot to wrap up here. Um, I did just want to touch briefly on our ACTUS update. This is uh, an update bringing you the latest on what's going on inside of ACTUS. Um, I'm very excited to be debuting with the members of the ACTUS advisory board our ACTUS provider engagement series. So, this will be kicking off next week with the publication of our first white paper. Um, This is going to be an ongoing series leading up to the 2020 conference in Las Vegas this year. It will include a series of papers on what provider engagement is, how it's measured, the importance of it. Uh, Really the highlight though of this series will be a series of case studies of successful organizations that have a high level of provider engagement and there are various ways to measure that. What we've realized is that there is no one-size-fits-all for provider engagement. It looks very different depending on the type of hospital you are, the size of your CDI program, the culture of your physician staff, your budget, etc. There are some underlying principles that are true across all organizations. But what we're hoping to do with the series is provide um, some different models that that could work in an organization like your own. Um, depending on, again, what resources you have. So very excited to begin rolling out this new provider engagement series as we kick off 2020. Okay, and that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus podcast. We're going to be back here again in two weeks. So uh, that will be on Wednesday, January 15th. We'll be back again with our usual every other Wednesday cadence. Today we Uh, This this program, we had to bump it back a day due to the new year, but um, we'll be back here in two weeks for career opportunities and challenges. So we're going to be taking a look at the job landscape for CDI professionals and having um, uh, a representative on from a recruiting agency to talk about what he's seeing in the industry, uh, where some of the challenges are, but where some of the opportunities are for the CDI profession from a... From a job side and a career perspective, uh, to kind of kick us off for the year. But as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, please send me an email at b.murphy@actus.org. I'd love to hear from you. And um, I'm excited for what's in store for the podcast in the coming year. Thanks for our listeners for joining today, and thank you again, Doctor Lamhoko, for your expertise on today's show. Again, I think it was a great topic, very timely. And a great message to 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 start us off on uh, 2020 on the right track with the clinical truth in mind. So take care, everyone. We'll Thank you, you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And I'll see you all on LinkedIn. <laughs> all right. We'll see you on the social <laughs> media. Bye, everyone. Interwebs. Take care, everyone.